0: And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here.
1: Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. My name's Glenn Cook, joined in studio by my co-host, Pat Stewart. Hello. Today we've got a very exciting show for everybody. We've got all the way over from the US of A, Mr. Tyler Mudo. You made it Hello. sound like he came all the way here, but... No, he's not here. He's <laughs> he's still in the US,
0: Buffalo, New York.
1: So, my friend, thanks for joining us on the show. Really appreciate you making the time for us today.
0: I'm glad to be here.
1: What we're going to do today is just find out a little bit about you. I mean, a lot of people around Australia already know about you from attending your <coughs> seminars, reading a material about you. You're a blogger online, obviously, and you've had a video series before. So, we're going to get down to that a little bit. But what we want to do is start by finding out who are you and how did you make your movement into the dog training
2: industry?
0: All right, cool. Yeah. Um, So, you know, it's funny. I'm always envious these days when I hear about people that like started off young, like in 4-H programs and, you know, we're learning how to train dogs. That's not exactly how, how my career began or, you know, where it came from. We always had dogs growing up and I was always sort of like the I was like the caretaker of the dogs in my home. I would walk them, I would feed them. They always slept in my room. So I've always had this just love for dogs. And the only, you know, if I really think back and I, I try and wonder, you know, why I'm a dog trainer and where this all came from, uh, there's two stories. One is we had a, a terrier mix when I was young and he was just a scraggly little mutt dog. And he was very food aggressive he was very food aggressive. Like we just all knew you feed him, you leave the room. And that was fine for us. Like as a family, we just all sort of knew leave him alone while he's eating. Mm-hmm. His name was Oliver. And uh, when I was a kid, I don't even remember how young I was. I was probably maybe elementary school or early middle school. I uh, I wanted to teach him to give me kisses. <laughs> and so I took a biscuit, like a milk bone biscuit. And I, I, like I held it behind it. my this back as I stuck my face in his face. <laughs> this is a, like I said, this is a dog with a, like a known history of being food aggressive. Um, so unsurprisingly, he, he bit me in the face and uh, (laughs) I do have a little scar under my beard and I have like a dimple on one side. You can barely tell it's there, but my cheek puffed up for like a week. I was really embarrassed to go to school. But what was interesting when I think back on that is like instantly, even as a sort of youngster, like I just knew right away that it wasn't the dog's fault. Mm -hmm. You know, it was completely my fault. Um, that I, I sort of betrayed his trust by doing that. You know, he had, he had told us very clearly, you know, who he was and and Mm. we didn't do anything about it. And then, uh, I did this thing anyway. And, um, you know, I, I sort of recognized right from the get go, you know, how he interpreted that situation. I was sort of able to see it through his perspective, you know, through his lens. And And my parents, how did you, how did your parents handle that? Kind of the same way. Like, that's cool. Not that they were like totally nonchalant about it, but, you know, in a sense it was like, well, I guess, you know, you learned a lesson. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. That's good. Um, but they to didn't hear take it. it out on the dog either. You know, like we all, we all sort of knew that was just kind of the household I grew up in. You mm-hmm. know, it's like it's a dog. It's going to be a dog. And, of course, now I know there's a lot that you can do about food aggression and resource guarding, but we didn't. Like we didn't really train our dogs when I was a kid. We didn't go to dog training classes. Um, you know, we did really basic stuff around the house. My parents had a couple of, like how to raise a puppy books and things of that nature. But yeah, it was just, you know, we just sort of learned to live together in that way. And it was in the city. It's not like, you know, we're in the country, like on a farm, like outdoor dog, Like we live right outside of downtown Rochester. And um, the other sort of formative thing for me that I think really led to dog training was actually even younger, we had a beagle named Chester. And the beagle was given to us by my father's cousin who bred them. One day he kind of dropped him off on our porch. It was this like really exciting thing, you know. He disappeared. We didn't know who brought the dog. Like as a little kid, my parents kind of set it up, so we thought this dog just like appeared by magic on the front porch in a little carrier. <laughs> the
3: dog um, stoke brought him
0: along. He was a cool dog, but he was a beagle living in the city. And again, we didn't really understand a lot about you know making sure dogs' needs are fulfilled and such. So he had two major problems. One was. You had to be very careful opening a door around him because he would fly right out. Mm-hmm. And we'd be chasing him into the hood. He, he would always go to the projects, always. I mean, just like the, the worst part of the neighborhood. And my dad would have to go with like chicken and, and turkey cold cuts and lure him back to the house. I remember my dad laying down on the sidewalk with like a trail of turkey coming to him. He had to lay down. So my dog come enough, you know, it was the silliest stuff, but we like we didn't know any better. But the other issue was he pulled really bad on leash. And I, like, I was the one who had to walk him. So this was a miserable experience for me. I hated walking him. I was young, especially in the winter. It was slippery outside. But what actually happened was he ended up collapsing his trachea. And
1: right,
0: okay. After, just all of a sudden, we'd be walking him, and he would just start puking. Like he couldn't breathe well, and he would just start throwing up bile and uh, foam. And, you know, we took him to the vet, and basically the vet just said, listen, like this, th- this isn't going to get better. And mm. we ended up putting him to sleep at, like, I don't know, he was young. He was maybe three years old. And I was devastated. I was like, it was just old enough to really understand, you know, what was going on. I was probably in maybe third grade. And uh, I just remember it like wrecking me for weeks. I mean, it was a really difficult thing for me to deal with knowing that, you know, basically like the act of walking this dog essentially killed him.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah, it was it was crazy. And, and of course, as a kid, too, like we knew we were going to be putting him down. My parents were very honest with us about it. It wasn't like a secret thing. Like all of a sudden one day the dog wasn't there. Yeah, he wasn't so going off to the farm. Was they told us why and um, they told us when, you know, so we still had time with the dog before he was going to get put down. And I remember that time. I remember I still have a drawing I did of him. I, he was sleeping on the heat register. He used to like to sleep on the heat register where the warm air came up. And I still have this little drawing I did when I was in the third grade of Chester sleeping, and it was it was right before he died. Mm. And I, I never thought about that until even like many years into my career, where I was like, man, I wonder if all the way back then, you know, my destiny was set, so to speak, to be a dog trainer, because now it's like, you know, I hate seeing dogs pull on leash, and I hate allowing dogs to pull on leash. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, like like at a visceral level, like I really hate it. Mm. And as dog
1: trainers, that's generally one of the key annoyances that drive people to come and seek you out for training advice, I find anyway.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like looking back, you know, early on in my career, people asked me how I became a dog trainer. Basically, I I sort of landed an apprenticeship randomly out of college. But it wasn't until many, many years later that I kind of looked back and realized like, man, I wonder if that really came from my childhood on any level, you know, and I'm sure it's all a little bit of everything.
3: Mm. but. Well, I think, no. you know, so many dog trainers understand the idea of the critical period in dogs and surely that same thing exists in people, right? And I mean, you're a dad, you, you understand like everything that's going on with that young boy of yours is is critical. He's making like a, a small experience could be a big deal to him later in life, the same way it can be with a puppy. So I reckon yeah. for sure that would have influenced you, definitely. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't until later, I actually, I hadn't, I didn't think about dog training. And um, like I said, we didn't train our dogs. <laughs> When I moved out of my house, you know, at 18, I went to college. I dropped out of my first year of college. You know, I was in a program that wasn't right for me, and I got an apartment with some buddies for a couple months, and and then I ended up just getting an apartment by myself. And the day before I moved into my apartment by myself, I went to the shelter and I adopted a dog. And so from that point on, as an adult, I always had a dog with me. And all through college, I basically lived in a one-bedroom apartment with a dog. That first dog I got actually also died very young. I was out at a movie with an ex-girlfriend and uh, we came back and he was in mid seizure and we took him to the emergency vet. It was the middle of the night and it was already too late. Like he had brain damage at that point and we had to put him down. And again, it was just devastating. I remember I just collapsed. My knees went out from under me because it was this beautiful, healthy, well-behaved dog. One day he's fine. The next moment, you know, gone, you know, there's no, no buildup. You didn't see it coming. And Mm -hmm. then I, I was without a dog for a couple of weeks and then I adopted another one from the shelter. I got a female named Lila and yeah, that was like, dogs from that point out. And then even in college, I was in college for philosophy. Never thought about dog training as a career until afterwards I was taking time off from school. I wanted to go back. My original plan was to be a philosophy professor. I wanted to get my PhD. I was taking time off. I was working for an associate of my mother's and he had a dog and shared an office with my mother. My mother had a dog. I would bring my dog to work. And that was one of my jobs was taking care of the dogs in the office. And uh, when he would travel, which was frequently, I would take his dog to a kennel for him, which was owned by a dog trainer. And that's when I kind of became fascinated with this idea that you could make a living out of training dogs. And I just would ask her a lot of questions every time I went in. And before you knew it, I found out that her assistant was leaving. And uh, one thing led to another. She offered me an apprenticeship. That's what I did. And then uh, everything kind of went from there.
3: So that, that apprenticeship, what's that look like? Because that's not something that people offer too much in Australia. That's not the idea that you'd become an apprentice dog trainer. Jay used the same term uh, last week. And here you might sort of volunteer somewhere or something and you can do, there's legally recognized courses you can do. But the idea of apprenticing with someone, what's that look like in the US?
0: It's not really a common thing here either these days. And I wish it were. I think honestly, it's the best model for learning any sort of craft, which is I always look at dog training as a craft. And uh, so for me, what happened was I called her up when I found out her assistant was leaving and I said, hey, you know, I'm very interested if you're going to be looking for help. And we talked a bit on the phone and she had me come down and she asked me to work a few dogs with her and that's what I did. And she apparently liked what she saw and we had a sit down and turned out she was looking for somebody to really kind of take over because she wanted to do a second location. So she was looking for somebody to groom to be a long-term employee. Mm -hmm. Now at this point, myself and my wife were already applying to grad schools and I knew even if I wasn't going to go to grad school that my wife was definitely going to go, and I was going to go with her. So I knew I couldn't commit to a long-term position. And I wanted to be very honest with her about that. I didn't want to take the position and then and then leave on her. Sure. So she said, you know, I don't normally do this, but I think you've got a good you know, skill with dogs. If you'd like, I can take you on as an apprentice, and that gives me time to find the right employee. Mm-hmm. And so being an apprentice essentially meant working for free, Right. And what I did was my boss, because he was, you know, he's a dog guy too. He let me cut down my hours to four days a week. And then I spent my days off going to the kennel. And it's like your typical, it sounds super cheesy, but it's like your typical old man story. I, like, I literally drove an hour and a half to get there, um, basically to clean up dog poop for free, you know? Mm-hmm. And I always joke around like I was barefoot in the snow and, and there was bears around, but, um, <laughs> no, but like, seriously, it was. You know, it was go there and just do anything that they asked me to do. And when she had time, she would come out and show me a few things. And then off I would go and she would have a list of the dogs she wanted me to get out and what she wanted me to do. I had a few weeks working alongside her assistant before he moved out of town. Mm -hmm. So he kind of showed me the ropes and then he took off. And then it was kind of just me when I was there. And and like I said, she would pop down when she had time and, and, you know, show me some things. I got bit for my first time professionally there, and it was uh, it wasn't a serious bite at all. It didn't even break skin. It was a big bloodhound. I still remember that. It was a good experience. I learned a lot, and then uh, and then we moved to Buffalo. My wife got into law school, and we moved to Buffalo.
1: Mm. With those apprenticeship schemes with people, I feel that one of the, well one of the suggestions I make to people who ask me that that very question about getting into the industry. And I've seen several others doing it on forum and in blogs before where they've said to people, if you want to get in, if you want to be noticed by people, start making yourself useful. Like turn up, bring some coffee, mop some floors, pick up some trash, uh, help around the place. And then people start thinking, geez, this person's invaluable in my life. They're worth investing in. They're worth giving a shot at helping me out. Because that attitude is slowly dissolving into, well, I'm here, so you owe me something. Which is kind yeah. of sad that – and to be honest, I'm, I'm quite fortunate. I've got a, a lot of young staff that work for me that I find invaluable. They're actually really good people. Their their work ethic is very good. They work hard when they're at work and, and I really appreciate them for it. Whereas that doesn't always happen. Sometimes we have staff that turn up and just don't work out and that happens in every industry. But for the majority, I'm quite blessed.
0: Yeah, it's – um. I think the apprenticeship is sort of like a dying, a dying thing. But yeah, it is. I always tell people, find a trainer you admire, take every class they offer and then stick around at the end and, and help clean up. That's the best way to do it. So for me, it was great. It was a learning experience. I wouldn't change a thing. I've been to tons of seminars and I've read books and taking courses, but there's nothing like just doing it and sort of being in the mix yeah. and being responsible for the, the outcome of the dog. Mm. There's no substitute for that. And and you make so many mistakes, especially, you know, that kind of model that I was in because she left me alone a lot. And so for a huge part of that, it was like she would show me a hint of something and then I would kind of have to figure the rest out on my own. And I made all kinds of mistakes. And I mean, it's just so invaluable to do that and to just have that sort of flexibility, even more so than if like at the time I was like, oh, I wish I had more time to spend with her so she could teach me more. Um, her name was Melissa, by the way. Hi, Melissa. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, uh, looking back on it, I'm actually really glad that it worked out the way it did because I think that time of just like experimenting, like I said, I had no background. Like at that point in my career, I hadn't read any books. I didn't have, I knew nothing about training a dog. We didn't even train our family dogs, Mm. you know? So I was really just figuring it out. And like Facebook wasn't even a thing back then. It was like still, um, It was still just for college students, you know? Mm -hmm. So there wasn't like videos and stuff like that on Facebook. There was only a small handful of people with dog training videos on YouTube because YouTube, I think at the time was only like maybe one year old. Mm -hmm. So it just wasn't the climate it is today where there's so much information out there. You're kind of just left to figure it out on your own.
3: I think about that a lot. Like the amount of when I first started in dogs or getting into dogs, the amount of stupid stuff that I was doing because I didn't have anyone to tell me otherwise. And you're just trying to scramble for information and – it wasn't even that long ago, but the amount of information that's available now is just. Oh, it's crazy. Through, oh, it's just insane. It's through the roof. You can find, you know, you can, I always call it the YouTube University. It's pretty much anything you can learn online. I mean, there's lots of crap, but there is actually quite a lot of pretty good stuff out there. People just giving away there's for free. Tongue. There's so much good
1: information. And I've had
0: clients come in that, like, their dogs have awesome foundations on them just from YouTube.
2: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: In the, back like, when it, I started, I, I think I've mentioned it on the show before, but back when I originally started, we were buying VHS tapes from the States so we could learn additional content about dog training because it just wasn't available. We didn't have the internet mm. and we didn't have YouTube yeah. and we didn't have Facebook to social network with people. Our social network was driving down and meeting people in a paddock somewhere. That was, that mm. was
3: social networking. And conversations like this would just not happen no. where you can talk to people on the other side of the world and talk talk dogs and, and how you got into it and whatever just so easily. It was such a – you had the 10 people that you knew within driving distance of you and that was it.
1: Yeah, well, talking to somebody on the other side of the world was a very, very expensive international call <laughs> that lasted for about yeah. five minutes because yeah. it would cost you about $50 in fees. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of pros and cons. I mean, I I see – trainers these days that have been training dogs for two or three years that like it's jaw-dropping their handling skills and their knowledge of what they're doing compared to when I look back at when I was two or three years in I mean holy smokes I mean just it's amazing it's I can't wait to see what some of these people are going to be like when they've been in it for 20 or 30 years I mean, it's just, you know, you're watching the industry roll forward mm. and, and continue to progress at an exponential rate. At the same time, Michael Ellis once said to me, he said, you know, there's certain things you can only learn to do by doing them. And unfortunately, sometimes the act of doing them is inherently unfair to the dog.
2: Mm. Yep.
0: And, you know, I think early on in my career, A, back then, the way I first learned to train was, was much more physical than how I currently train. And that's not knocking the woman that I worked for. I, I, I think she's evolved over time as well as the rest of us. This was a long time ago.
1: Yeah, that's just job and
0: um, just the way things were, right?
1: I think many I of us were working off the, the Keeler method. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was and, that was what was around at the time.
0: Yeah, but there's so much I learned by going through that process. There's so much I learned just about everything, you know, leash handling, about how stress affects a dog, about what I what I don't want to do, mm. and there's really no substitute for that. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, like you can't l- really understand that stuff just by hearing somebody else talk about it. So it's amazing to watch the newer crop of trainers and, and just the speed at which they're developing. But at the same time, I, I don't regret, you know, where I came from. You know what I mean?
3: Yeah. I think that yeah. practical element and that sort of grounding in figuring out yourself develops a much uh, deeper base for your knowledge, I think, to for, for which to build more nuanced and technical skills upon but so I think a lot of people if you just get that for free and it's too easy by free I mean not paying I mean just that you watch videos and you're immediately quite good if it can really help to have that solid base of having to figure it out yourself I think you know learning by self-discovery is is a lot of the time the best possible way to do it but as you say sometimes that's not that's not ideal for the dog that's in front of you
0: yeah exactly
3: so you finished with her and you moved to Buffalo and, and that's when you went out on your own straight away
0: Yeah. So originally, so what happened was this, I didn't want to initially, I called around um, looking for other dog trainers in the area to see if there was somebody else I could get a job with. And as you guys know, it's not easy to get a job in the dog training industry. Like Mm -hmm. just the jobs are few and far between if you want like a decent job. And the other thing about it was I was really fascinated by the sort of behavioral aspect of training. I wasn't interested in competitive dog training or agility or anything like that, which is how a lot of people historically get into dog training is they do the four H and they kinda I don't know if you guys have four H out there. Yeah, what is the Four H tell us what that is? It's it's basically um they're usually like nonprofit organizations. I actually don't know the history of it, but it's a program for children that they can learn anything from dog training to animal husbandry. Like you can learn how to, you know, milk cows. I mean it's basically like an agriculture program right, um, okay. for young kids, but they have a dog training thing that you can do as part of that. And they actually compete and stuff, right. um, you know, like a little obedience trial. I'm probably doing a horrible justice to 4-H because I really, honestly, I haven't like <laughs> it. Does, it does. It do gives it, a us kid, a generalization of it, anyhow. which is good. Yeah. But anyhow, um, uh, what, what was I talking about? 4-Hs. <laughs> <Four H's.
3: laughs> when you got and into moving dogs. Buffalo. Be, yeah. You got into dogs from the behavioral side, not the competitive yeah, 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 obedience. Yeah. side. So. Exactly.
0: Okay. Thank you. Sorry. So, yeah, it was the behavioral end of it that really interested me. And there wasn't anybody in Buffalo really doing that or at least not doing it to a degree that I sort of had, you know, this vision in my head of how it should be. Mm -hmm. And so what I ended up doing was getting a job at a vet hospital. They hired me as a vet assistant primarily because of my experience with my apprenticeship where we did a lot of behavior stuff. We worked with a lot of aggression cases so they knew I'd be comfortable handling some of the more difficult dogs when I needed to do procedures on them. And so they hired me as a, as a vet assistant. And I also did some reception work there. And then, yeah, I basically just like went downtown and got my DBA, which is just like the basic, like you can do business as this name. It's like $30 and just started throwing free ads out on Craigslist. And that's how I started was just in my car and just driving around and still really novice. I mean, insanely novice at this point. Um, and, and the one thing I did was because the place that I had learned was so kind of old school. And of course I'm seeing that there's this other side of things that's, you know, clicker training and positive reinforcement. And so because I didn't have the ability to like go to a school or anything like that at the time, I did the online animal behavior college course Mm -hmm. because I wanted to learn about, you know, other ways to train dogs. And so the cool thing about that course was it was mostly online, but then they also set you up with. Kind of like an apprenticeship, but it's basically like you go and help out in somebody else's group classes one hour a week for, you know, 16 weeks or something. So you had to do a couple rounds of it. And that was cool because I got to learn the positive reinforcement end of it, or at least the introduction to that. What a lot of people don't know is when I first started k Connection, my first, you know, few handful of clients, I sort of miserably attempted to be purely positive or force-free. And I say miserably, not because I was miserable, just because I was miserable at it. Um, I really was good at it. And so I, I got very frustrated because, of course, I knew the results I could achieve. The thing was I wasn't super comfortable doing it the way I had learned mm-hmm. now that I wasn't under somebody else's umbrella. And it was, you know, a lot of it was, you know, the ethics of it. But to be perfectly honest, a lot of it was just, you know, when I was working at the kennel I worked at, I only worked board and trained dogs. I mean clients weren't there. Mm. You know, so they would see the end result, which looked great, but they didn't see like how we got there. And I didn't I never observed a private lesson or like even saw how they were done. And I just couldn't imagine some of the rough handling that we did of dogs doing that in front of their owner. And and how do you how do you talk your way out of that? You mm. know, that was really difficult for me. So I didn't do it. I, I I wasn't comfortable with it. I attempted to be, you know, kind of force-free. And my clients were happy. Because, you know, the one thing about being a dog trainer is I think first and foremost, you have to be likable. And so my clients really liked me. And so they were happy, even though I personally think the results were mediocre. And then, you know, I ended up adopting a new dog. I still had Lila, my dog from college, and I adopted a second dog and and she was actually very leash reactive. And I was really struggling kind of dealing with that. Of course, here I am, this dog trainer saying, he's going to work with your aggressive dog. And my own dog was like super leash reactive. Um, And that's when I kind of broke out my remote collar again and said, there's got to be a better way to use this thing. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And so I started just playing around kind of using a low level tapping to get the dog's attention and pairing that with food and and, um, being able to break her focus before she exploded at dogs that way. And, I mean, I kid you not, like, I, I thought I was a genius. I tell this story all the time. I thought I was a genius because I, I thought I invented this, like, brand new thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I did some poking around on the internet of what was there at the time. And then I learned that there was other people out there already doing this kind of stuff. There was people like Martin Dealey and Mark Goldberg. And I remember I called both of them. I spoke to both of them on the phone. I called all. I called a bunch of people. And, um, and I just kept teaching myself and that's kind of what developed into what I am today is basically mm-hmm. from that was hey you can find some balance here and you can do it in a way that that's fair and you can be extremely effective you know by just being a little bit more compassionate
3: so tell us a little bit about that in that you've gone from this guy sort of alone in the wilderness you're you're figuring this stuff out to for yourself to then you say you're talking to Martin Delli and Mark Goldberg and and how did that transition work i mean like i'm picturing you just individual dog trainer by yourself, figuring it all out, to now president of the IACP. There's no one more networked into the the, the business than you. How yeah, did
0: that so happen? Yeah, so that was a, a huge leap. And actually, it's funny because I was a member of IACP back then because Melissa, the woman I worked for, was a member, and she encouraged me to do so. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really know anything about the organization. So when I say I spoke to the two of them, it wasn't like as any kind of peer back then, I was nobody and I called each of them interested in, I wanted to learn and they were both just kind enough to call me back right. and have a conversation with me. And I remember each of them spent a decent amount of time with me on the phone. They probably don't even remember because this was so long ago, but, but both of them called me back and they both spoke to me and they were both very kind and very generous with their time.
1: Everything that I've heard and read about them and I've briefly met them at the IACP. I don't know them anywhere near as well as you do, but I've heard really good things about both of them.
0: Yeah, just good people. But yeah, from there to like where I am now as president is man. There's a there's a lot of stories. Some <laughs> you know, the water under the bridge there. Um, but there was, I mean, there was a huge lapse of time between me talking to them on the phone and me having anything to do with a even dog training on a national or international scale, and B um, anything to do with the IACP on a more administrative level but those two conversations and then me just basically just diving in head first. Cause that's the way I am, you know, as a philosophy student, that's it. I mean, literally means love of wisdom. You know, we, we love learning. Mm-hmm. I still consider myself a philosopher, you know, at heart to this day. Yeah. Just kept, kept learning, kept practicing, kept working dogs, kept making insane, stupid mistakes. And that was, that was it, man.
1: So Tyler, with the side of education that you had looking at going into philosophy how did that sit with your parents? Like you were looking at one stage, of are becoming like a professor in philosophy. Mm. So yep. as, a, as yep. a professor in philosophy, you've geared yourself up for that. Obviously your family were behind that. And then all of a sudden a complete hit of the brakes and you became a professional trainer. How did that sit with your family?
0: I, in that realm, am an extremely lucky person. I grew up in a family of artists. And so both my parents were sort of like, the, not the outcasts of their family, but they were the different ones of their family and they followed their hearts. And, you know, if there's one thing I learned from them, it's just do what you love and, and do it the best you can and money will come like just, but do what mm-hmm. you love. Yep. And I learned that from them. So, I mean, philosophy is not an, a very lucrative major and there's not many jobs in philosophy. So you're like, either you're lucky enough to be a professor or you're unemployed Um, So even that alone, them being really cool with that, because when I first went to college, it was for engineering. You know, your guidance counselor often doesn't tell you to be a philosopher or a dog trainer. Mm. So I was good at math and they put me in electrical engineering. So that's what I did. And I hated it. It was very dry from a kid who comes from a family of artists. Mm -hmm. Um, It was very dry. and, And the dorm experience wasn't good for me either, probably because my parents were so liberal with me growing up. And they gave me a lot of freedom to, you know, to make my own choices with with certain stipulations and boundaries, and so for most kids, when they go and they live in the dorms, it's like this release and this sudden freedom. And for me, it was actually less freedom because the dorms actually had more rules than I had living with my parents. Yeah, right. So it was like this co- this combination of not the right major and not the right living arrangement. It was a bit of a difficulty for me to convince them to be cool with the fact that I was going to drop out of college. I mean, I remember sitting on the phone with my father. At probably midnight one night, and I'm crying, and I'm on the phone with him, and I was just so I was having like a nervous breakdown. There it was it was really a, a dark time in my life, and then I just moved back home, and you know there was a kind of a lapse there because it was mid semester, and then I enrolled in the local community college, and I just said I'm just going to take a little bit of everything and see where I land. And I, I took a philosophy of religion course and I got sucked right in mm. and it was a wrap from there. I, and at, that was the first time in my life that I actually started looking forward to going to school and enjoying it. So my parents were thrilled that I was just so passionate about something. And then when I decided I want to be a dog trainer, I mean, it was no problem, you know, for them, it was just like, you know, we trust you, do what you love. I actually give more credit to my wife uh, because, you know, when she met me, I was like this academic, <laughs> Probably going to go and get my PhD. And next thing you know, I'm this dog guy and yeah. she's living with all these dogs. And I've brought so many crazy dogs into our house and she's been so supportive through the whole thing. So it's actually, I wasn't surprised that my parents are cool, that I'm, I'm so blessed that my wife has been as supportive as she's been throughout my career because she's been here through all of it. I mean, she was, you know, we met right when I was wrapping up college and she's just been behind me the whole time. You That's know?
3: fantastic. That's really good. So tell us about when did you make the leap you're traveling around training other people's dogs You're in this sort of as force-free model as you can When did you open your own facility and and how did that come about? What was the catalyst for that?
0: Yeah, so again, you know, I just feel like i've been so lucky throughout my career so what happened was I was driving around training dogs it was actually early on during this period where I met Josh Moran. He was one of my first clients, mm-hmm. and I still to this day remember his voicemail because I was like, "Who is this dude?" He just like he spoke very monotone, and he was just like, "Yeah, I um, saw your ad on Craigslist. Uh, I got this dog that I found, and it would be nice if he at least like knew his name or something." And that was like, voicemail like. And I was like, "Man, who is this dude?" But I met with him and and Jess, who he's still with. Mm-hmm. And I helped him out with King. And I was still like winging it. This was – when I met Josh, it was when I was first starting to play around with low-level e-collar stuff. So he was one of the first clients that I actually like kind of went through this protocol that I had sort invented. of invented even though other people already, <laughs> yeah. like, already were doing it. You know yeah. what I mean? But I invented it for myself. But And then it was kind of the same thing. Like he just he just didn't leave me alone after that. He just <laughs> kept following me around. Oh, uh, no, we became good friends. And I remember like he used to call me up early on and he'd be like, Hey, what are you doing right now? And I'd just say like, I'm, I'm going to go out and shovel my driveway because we get snow here in Buffalo mm-hmm. and a lot of it. And then next thing I know, he would just pull up and he'd just be shoveling my driveway with me. And then we just, you know, he'd have his dog with him and we would just play with our dogs and do some training and talk dogs and play video games and smoke pot. And you know, it was like, it was the good old days back then. And then we'd drive around he'd see some clients. and I mean, he would come to my appointments with me. And so when I got big enough that I, I kind of could use some help, it was a no brainer. Cause he was just there, mm-hmm. you know, again, it's the apprenticeship model. He knew how to do it. Yeah. You know, he just showed up and made himself pleasant to be around and useful. And we, we developed a great friendship. And then, so he was my first employee. And then, um, what I used to do was I wanted to do some group classes. So I I used to rent out some churches that had big halls that you could rent out like community rooms, you know, with tables and chairs and stuff. And they would let us use the space for dirt cheap. And uh, we'd clear the tables and chairs and run a group class and then put all the tables and chairs back. It was a tremendous amount of work, but it kind of got us going. And then I ended up having a client that saw the rate that I was growing. And he said, you're going to need space. And it turned out that, um, He was the head reverend for one of the Episcopal churches in town. And the Episcopal church had this beautiful building that was across from a high school that was vacant. It was a church, but they weren't using it. Mm -hmm. And the high school kids were coming over after school and smoking cigarettes and vandalizing and this and that. So they just wanted somebody in it. And they loved dogs. So they rented me the whole building, although we only used the ground floor, the basement, basically. They had two big rooms down there. I mean, huge rooms and an office. That was my first facility. They rented me the whole thing for $400 a month. Wow. They paid for everything, gas, electric. They plowed the parking lot, garbage pickup. They mowed the lawn. I mean, it mm. was great. It was absolutely great, but I couldn't modify it in any way. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to just leave it as is. And we were respectful. We left the, the church part alone, even though it wasn't being used. And then eventually, they decided they wanted to, to, to use that building. And I would just walk down the street to another church that was down the road. I said, hey, do you by any chance have some space for rent? We've been down here. They can give me a reference. It was like three blocks away. And the head reverend literally had her dog sitting next to her in her office when I was there. And she's like, yeah, I have this room and this office you can use and this other space you can use too, if you need it. And it was like $600 a month. And they were an active church, but basically we just, we didn't operate on the weekends when they were operating. Mm -hmm. We operated during the week. And when they would rent out the space to other people, we always worked around their schedule. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was kind of how I started. And then Eventually, my wife found this property, and we had been trying to buy property for a while, but nobody would lend me because I was so young, I had no I didn't own anything. You know, I had no equity, and I didn't have a lot of money. And uh, it was like you know the end of the housing crisis, like the financial decline, you know, so banks weren't lending a lot. And I got in touch with this one local bank, shout out to Evans Bank in Buffalo, New York, their local bank. And the loan officer came and sat down with me and just listened to me and, and for whatever reason he believed in me. He helped me work in conjunction with the bank and then the Small Business Administration, and get a set of loans to to buy this building and get the construction done that I needed. And there was a few scary moments in there. This is gonna be this is kind of a long story, but you guys can cut me off if anything comes up you want to ask about. No, tell it. We had, you know, we knew kind of X amount of dollars was needed to get this building up and running because we had, you know, somebody come and inspect it. And so we we got this initial round of lending to cover the cost of the building, which was dirt cheap because it was it was um, it was uninhabitable. It had water damage, the roofs were caved in. I mean, this thing was a mess. But it was like I could afford it, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> yeah. But it was a disaster. It had been sitting vacant. But
3: it was your disaster.
0: But it was my disaster. And so we got this lending, and I had to jump through hoops to get it. Remember? And then all of a sudden, I walked in one day. Now, bear in mind, in this span of time, we got kicked out of the church we were in because they needed to use the space. You know, the relationship was still good, but we just need to, to, mm-hmm. to get out of there because they needed to use the space. Well, the building wasn't quite ready. So, in the beginning, I was actually operating out of there illegally. We didn't have a certificate of occupancy. I had no heat. We just had like floodlights set up. It was like super gloomy in there. Yeah. A bare cement floor that was like dusty. It wasn't even sealed. So, every day you'd just be breathing this dust. I would go home <laughs> and blow my nose and it would just be dust, you know?
2: Mm -hmm. And and it gets
0: cold in
1: Buffalo too, right? It
0: gets cold. I mean, this was like early autumn. So we were kind of lucky. The yard was just a mud pit. It was a rundown neighborhood. I had clients that left because they were just like, listen, guy, I "I love you, man, but this is like, I'm not not coming here. (laughs) Um, And then I walked in one day and my contractors were like, hey, so now that we've like torn everything apart and actually gotten into these walls and everything, here's an invoice of how much is left. You know, here's like an estimate of how much is left. And mm-hmm. basically my, my lending was gone at that point. And there was still like this, you know, probably like $150,000, 160000 left. Right. And I just like, I was floored. I remember I went home and just like, I went to my wife. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Cause the building wasn't even legal to operate in yet. Mm. And I had no place to operate out of. And I basically put everything I own and signed my life away for this thing. You know, I mean, I had to take, I'd take out life insurance and like, I mean, it's craziness, right? Mm. So I was like, oh my gosh. So I remember just laying there for a minute and just, it it wasn't long at all. It feels like it was a blink of an eye, but me just like having to flip my mentality. And just, I just looked at my wife and I said, you know what? I'm going to figure this out. Like, it's going to be fine. I'm going to figure this out. And um, I started thinking right away and just jotting down numbers of if I do this and that and run this program and if I can bring in X amount in this program, got on the phone with my loan officer the next day. And he said, look, man, he's like, you know, at this point, the banks got an interest in it because they don't want a property that's unusable either. So let me talk to some people. Here's what I need from you to get together as far as like a new business plan and projections. And in like less than 24 hours, I had a new business plan, financial projections, got it over to him. And he's like, all right, we've got the lending. We're good to go. And it was a scary moment, but it was a blessing because here's the the, the reality is if I would have known that it was going to cost that amount of money total <laughs> going into it, even if I could have got the lending, I wouldn't have been able to afford the down payment right. at that amount. But the thing was with this period of time in between where we were doing construction and then even like operating out of there illegally and everything else, I was able to save enough money to pay the next down payment. Mm-hmm. So, even though it was this scary, unexpected thing, it was the only way that it, that it would have happened anyway, right
3: mm, like uh, a blessing in disguise, and, really
0: yeah, exactly, exactly, and so we just sort of hunkered down and we got it, we got it up and running it wasn't beautiful, but it was like it was nice, you know it was nicer than anything else that I'd been around. And um, you know, we had our rubber floors and paint on the walls and lights and heat and everything, but we, like our 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 front office was a folding desk with a computer on it, like a folding table, yeah, you know like a, and a busted old folding table at that and that's what people <laughs> walked into, you know, but we were making do and um and just every year we did a little bit more and I, I did every additional thing out of pocket, and that was the transition and uh and it's been great and it's been a learning experience because I've never I don't have a business background. Um, I don't have a management background. That's that's the hardest thing for me is, you know, my staff will probably, they take a lot in my learning curve, you know, trying to learn how to manage people and, and, and do a good job there. But, um, you know, it's been, uh, it's been a journey, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so that's how I got to operating the facility. You know, that's basically the story of it.
1: Some of those things that happen in your early life, especially that when you're sitting on that financial precipice, they're tipping points for a lot of people. Like, it's that make or break moment where you've got to decide, here it is. Here is what I have to do to, to make this happen. And out of that diversity, some really great decisions and some really great futures have been forged right in that moment.
0: Yeah. I mean, basically, you've got, it's like that classical, you know, hero's journey. You're looking at a fork mm. in the road, you know. In my case, I mean, I really didn't have a choice. So, I just had to say, you know what, If I, like, I'm in this now and I'm going to crush it. I'm just going to do the best I can and make do. And, you know, from there on, it, it just continued this crazy learning curve. Cause what happened was I had to grow the business incredibly fast. Like I had to go from like barely covering my own salary to, you know, having this massive overhead. And I grew the business by hundreds of a percent within a year. Mm-hmm. Again, we, you know, we got to a point of stability, but the downside of that was there was no organization to it and every little decision had to flow through me so now i've i've hired all this new staff i barely know how to manage people or delegate anything i'm like learning how to run a business i've never run a kennel i've never run a daycare i've never you know i'm doing all these things i've never done before and there was no systems in place there were no systems in place there were no protocols there were no here's what you do in case of emergency there was no follow these two steps or these guidelines or here's your checklist to know you've done your duty for the day i mean there was none of that there was no operating manual you know, and so I was being like everything flowed through me. It was it was sucking the life out of me. I mean, I, I literally was having like a breakdown and I just said something's got to give. So that's when I kind of backed off and I was like, all right, I got to take myself out of the day to day a little bit. There was a period where I actually barely trained any dogs and hmm. just focused on the business itself. And I was like, I got to learn this. I had to learn how to train dogs before. And now I got to learn this because this is a mess right now. And I couldn't have any time off. Even my time off, my phone was ringing constantly. It was nuts, man. Mm. So it was just like, it was just a learning curve, you know, and you just, you dive in head first. And that's kind of the way my whole career went. You know, like I, I shouldn't have even been owning a dog training business when I first moved to Buffalo. I didn't have enough experience, but there was no other option if I wanted to train dogs. That's what I wanted to do. And so I just dove in head first to that. I had to dive in head first to the building and learning how to run a business. And, uh, now I'm diving headfirst into parenting. <laughs> it's, all, it's all a journey, man.
1: So it with is. that, uh, Tyler, how do you think success came about? Like what was the – if there's a take-home message for people who are listening to the show, you started off in a struggle. You started off in a dilapidated kind of building that needed a lot of work and you were hitting some high overheads and having to then bring on staff and pay them. What was the, what was the turning point that started generating a cash income for, for you? What made um, it happen?
0: Like sheer determination, sheer determination. And that's um, that's a quality that I've always had. Yep. That's one of the things I was just, I was, you know, one of the gifts I was given, I guess.
3: I think people can deal with that kind of high level stress in two different ways. You know, some people give up, say, oh, it's too, exactly to say that fork in the road. Oh, well, this is too hard. We have to fold it all up. You know, it's too difficult. And then others see it and go, well, this is, I need this stress. Removed, and that constant struggle to get it off is leads to the the positive that's hmm. the 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 reinforcer. I know myself I used to think that I was a mad procrastinator, you know, and then I realized I just don't perform well. Not under stress, so I would leave things to the last minute to put myself under stress. You're, and then... you're making this into a napo post, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's but it's hard. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I was actually trying to not say napo post the thing, but it is. It's a lifestyle, and that's exactly it. That you you understand that with, with removing that pressure is going to feel amazing when it when it does, and the increments doing that along the way led to you're in a building that is you're hundred fifty thousand dollars in the hole, and you know that giving up, it, waving the white flag to use another another butt term is not an option Mm -hmm. Uh, you just got to work through it and get it done you just have
0: to you know there's two funny stories that just popped into my head that kind of relate to that one is this goes back to like i said there was just one these qualities about myself that i know i have i remember when i first met my wife and i introduced her to my best friend from high school ian hawk he's a great guy i I still remember he said this to her really early on it just kind of struck me because i thought it was an odd thing to say and he had never even said this to me before so i didn't know that he thought this way about me but he said I'm not sure if you've learned this yet about Tyler, but if there's one thing you should know about him is that if there's something he really wants, don't get in his way. Mm. Like He meant it as a compliment. You know what I mean? <laughs> like He meant it in a very good way. But as you were just talking about putting yourself under stress, when me and my wife first met, we lived out in the country. And we used to go to Letchworth Park almost every weekend and hike. And Letchworth Park is this huge gorge. They call it the Grand Canyon of the East. It's nowhere near the Grand Canyon. But this is this really cool river gorge with some waterfalls. And my MO when we would go there is to always go off the trails and I would love to go down into the river gorge and then have to come back up off the trails. And it was always brutal. Like we, you'd get, I remember one time I got a stuck in this stuff that I had to hack away with a machete and it was so dense that I didn't realize I lost my glasses until like an hour later when we finally made it out. <laughs> when you go, um, oh, can't I can't say at, anything. <laughs> at, at first my wife was like, You know, she used to kind of like complain about these hikes, but she realized after a while and, you know, we used to talk about it, how it's like, yeah, it's tough. But when you finally get back to the road, when you find your way back to the trail and you get to your car, like you're exhausted, but you feel so good. Like you feel like, man, I made it. And that's the way it was. We'd go down into the gorge and we'd be hiking up and come across these steep inclines and, you know, have to scale up. And I mean, you had no idea what you were going to encounter. But that was the whole thing of it, you know, that was the drive to go was to put yourself under stress, as you say, and then scramble your way out of it. And it's just the, um, you know, the sort of hit you get from that is, is something else.
3: Hmm. Yeah, I'm loath to go too deep in the conversation with a philosophy major, so I don't get, get schooled. But I think that's life. The life is about having a, a goal, overcoming that stress, moving on to the next one. And people who are unhappy have either a goal that is unachievable and, can't ever get to it so therefore they're like almost helpless and the other end is just as bad people who have no goal and are just floating around in life and that's that's the chaos it's when it's when things are achievable a little bit hard a little bit harder i have to work to get it then it feels good when you do get it that's how I live by it anyway. That's that's how I think. We're a long way from dog training, but that's 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 Yeah, that's but my we're not. On. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> that's the thing, but yeah. we're not. I, yeah.
3: I, I've got so, a really good quote on that. I'm just looking up at the moment.
1: It's by a, a guy called Alfred D'Souza, and it says, For a long time it had seemed to me that life was about to begin, real life, but there was always some obstacle in the way, something to be gotten through first, some unfinished business, Time still to be served or a debt to be paid. Then life would begin. At last it dawned on me that these obstacles were my life. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Perfect. That's one of my favorite quotes, that and Mayor Angelou's quote. Both of those quotes are, are two that resonate really well with me and especially when listening to your story about setting up your business. I mean, I've been through very similar instances where I've thought, you know, this is getting too hard, I'm getting in too deep. The consequences could be dire, it could mean the end, and and it never really is. The fact is, it's even if it is the end sometimes, it's always the start of a new beginning. I mean, I've been through some failed businesses before where I was involved in a security industry business with a couple of guys, and when it was going great, it was really good. We had some good times together, we were making good money, and then something you were talking about, when that housing crisis hit, when it hit us as well and the banks and the insurance companies just closed in around us, and insurance went through the roof, and repayments went through the roof. Even our clients, you know, we had to put our money up. Our clients were saying, look, we can't afford to pay that. And that industry at the time was quite rogue. There was a lot of situations where we just couldn't make money to pay people. So we were working for free ourselves just so we could keep our staff on. And finally, I saw it, you know, this, this just isn't going to happen. And I didn't want to admit defeat. I thought, I, I really don't want to see this go downhill because it's something I created, something I was a part of forging it. But there are times where you have to know when to say when. And there are other times you have to know when to hold your ground and take the fight. And I've been in those situations as well, even in the current uh, job that I'm in. When I first arrived here at, uh, at my current employment, it certainly wasn't looking too good at the time. But Over time, we got together, the staff got together, the business owner got together and we all cracked it and we all really, really put in and turned the company around. I mean, people were almost taking bets that their business was going to fall over at one stage. However, through determination and good marketing plans and certainly a lot of hard work, it turned around.
0: Yeah, it's a hell of an establishment you guys have there too.
1: Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Getting back to you, one of the things that I do know, like you said before, that you've got this determination and sitting down and meeting you and, and getting to know you a little bit better when you were in Australia, I did find that you're quite a determined guy, especially in the area of knowledge. I mean, I think that comes from your study background and being part of being a, academic. a, a an academic. Yeah, that's a good point. So being part of an academic has certainly driven you to have a, a deeper interest in knowledge as an aspect. And you are a self-confessed knowledge nerd. Am I right?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah,
1: certainly. One One of the things I did find, Tyler, is when I was speaking to you is that you have a very, very good grasp on the academia side of dog training as well. Like you certainly know your theory side of it, deeper than most people that I've spoken to. And I could immediately identify that because I'd ask you a question. Not only did you know the answer, but you were pulling quotes out of the air without referencing anything of many people throughout history who have you know, had similar instances, but also had the answer through their academia.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's one thing that everybody can do for themselves is to read a book. I think it's one of the best uses of your time and your energy, whatever it is, even if it's just for pleasure. Mm. You know, even fiction books are creative in how they describe the world, mm. right? And help you to see things from a different angle. But I don't, personally, I've I've never been a fiction reader. I've always just enjoyed nonfiction. That's probably why I really fell into philosophy because it was like nonfiction that was really fascinating. And I've always been a very analytical person and a very logical person. And to me, dog training is both those things. Yeah, when I first started getting into dogs, I just instantly wanted to, you know, I'm just kind of person that if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it the best I can. And Mm -hmm. so that meant learning what I could about it. And I just found it was a fascinating topic to learn about. And what I love about dog behavior animal behavior in general is, and this feeds the the philosophy side of me is that it's like, you can never know it all. I mean, it's just this mm. like endless well of knowledge. And there's always somebody else's perspective that you can, even if you don't agree with it, you can learn something from it. And so it's just, it's so vast. And every now and then you just discover something new that gets you excited again. You know, like you can, you dive into one topic and you feel like you've got a firm grasp of that. And the next thing you know, you're like, Oh, wait a minute. I had my back's been turned to this whole other side of things over here. And then you get excited again. And then getting excited about what you're learning makes you get excited about going out there and trying to apply it in the real world with the dogs and the people that you're working with. And so one side feeds the other, you know, I I go home and I read and that makes me excited to go to work the next day. And then if I get frustrated with something at work, as far as trying to figure something out, it makes me want to pick up a book and see if I can find any hints to it in a book, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I just, it's like a cycle. And, uh, and yeah, I just, I love it, man. It's, okay. it's the way I approach things.
1: So in regards to reading, if you could recommend three good books for our listeners to pick up something that would be life-changing for them, what would they be?
0: Oh, okay, life-changing. So not necessarily dog behavior.
1: Well, man. it can be. It's It can be something that would further their career or something that would enhance their capability in what they're doing.
0: Okay, so three books. All right, I'm going to say one I'm a really big fan of Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, Mm -hmm. and that's a popular one these days. It's kind of had a resurgence, and it's a great book. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, for those who aren't aware, was an emperor and arguably one of the most powerful rulers in the history of the world. And Meditations is basically his private journal, Mm. and it's his private journal through a period of his life where he was not only extremely powerful, but almost continuously at war and when you read it, it sounds like he's telling you something as if it was like, I'm an author writing a book and I'm talking to my audience. But what you have to understand is because it was his private journal, his audience was it was himself. So it's these little segments, each one no more at the the biggest, sometimes a page, the smallest, just a sentence and they're reminders to himself about how to live a good life and how to be a good person and how to be humble and how to be strong. And so it's it's powerful in and of itself when you understand who wrote it, the time in his life it came from, and the context in which it was written. That it was never intended to be published. This was literally for his for himself. That's why it's called the Meditations. Um, I think it's a very powerful book. It is. And so yeah. I I love that book. Man, this is tough. I feel like I have to give this some more thought. Maybe we can come back to this. Yeah, All that's right. fine. That's well, let's for
3: let's talk yeah. about the ISCP. So you said that you were a member way back in the day. Um, And right now you're the president. So let's, there's, there's gotta be some stories along that
2: journey.
0: Sure. Sure. Honestly, um, that leap was just a couple stepping stones. So early on in my career, I, I met a few other dog trainers and one of them one day sent me this video of, of Bart Belland. It was the only video of him floating around online at the time. You can still find it. It's not even on YouTube, but it's him doing this demonstration. It's in like an arena, I don't know what the event was, but there's music playing in the background. And it's just him walking his dog, Thor, through some obedience.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And at the time, I had never seen anything so clean. And, of course, if you ask Bart, you know Thor was very young and untrained at this time. Um, and knowing him now, I know that this was, it was nothing compared to what he's fully capable of. But to me at the time, it was like I had never seen anything like this. And I had seen focused healing and competitive obedience, but nothing like what Bart was doing. Mm. And I became very obsessed with Bart. At the time, he hadn't been to the States in in many years, and then one day I found out he was coming back for a seminar, so we went. There I met my friend Tekla Walton, and Tekla Walton and I got to chatting. She was an IACP member, and um, she had hosted a Chad Mackin workshop. I know you guys, I think, have Chad coming up there pretty soon.
3: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's, he's and sweet. I had
0: seen Chad's workshops advertised in the IACP journal, and it was called Pack to Basics, and I was a little bit like... Uh, is this like a Caesar Milan wannabe? Cause it had the word pack in it. Like that. that's just what I was thinking at the time, you know? So I was kind of, and like workshops weren't really a thing back then. It wasn't like the way it is now where like there's workshops all the time. Like if you were involved in a sport, there were workshops if you were a competitor, but like, not like pet, pet workshops weren't really happening that much. So, um, but Tecla said she hosted them and she told me about it and it sounded like a game changer because I was working with a lot of aggressive dogs. And basically for us at the time, you know, Quote, rehabilitating that dog basically meant like if it's a dog aggressive dog, that okay, you can be over here and another dog can be over here and you're not trying to kill each other, so Mm -hmm. good. Yeah, but they're also not interacting, right? Like just leave each other alone and we're good. At least you're not blowing up and being a total, you know, uh, jerk, right? And so she told me about Chad's workshop and how you learn how to socialize dogs, and I was like, all right, I gotta try this out. And of course, true to my nature, I obsessively researched everything I could about Chad's workshops and tried to figure out as much as I could on my own prior to
2: uh-huh.
0: actually having him. <laughs> and what I ended up doing was hosting him. So I brought him to Buffalo. And it was a small event and it was really eye-opening to me because I just had never seen the material presented that way before.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so not only did it sort of open up for me the ability to start socializing dogs off leash, which I hadn't been doing really, not dogs that were aggressive. Um but it changed the way I looked at aggression in general and behavior problems in general, once I understood how dogs relate to each other better. And that was a huge tipping point in my career, by the way, for like, just as far as my overall, the way I was looking at dog training. And I I really give Chad a lot of credit for what he was doing back then, going around doing these workshops. And I mean, who he is now and his skill socializing now is even, I mean, you know, like we've all grown a lot in 10 years. And back then, Man, I I can't even imagine the load of stress that was on him trying to teach people this, but he really believed in the power of socialization and and how important it was for every dog, not just the dogs that were already social. Mm -hmm. So I met Chad that way. We had him in Buffalo for two days. And then we kept in touch. And at one point in my career, and there's a long story to this too, but I started playing around with approaching leash work in a different way. And... I knew from my time spent with Chad and conversations I'd had that he would really appreciate it. And so I shot some video of a dog I was working with, and I I texted it over to him. And he got back to me in five minutes, and he said, you're not going to believe this, and sent me a video that he had recorded previously. So it's not like he just did it all of a sudden, but it was him doing almost the exact same thing. Yeah, right. And so we went on this like mad spree for months of texting each other back and forth and sending each other ideas. And it was this sort of like madhouse of us just, again, getting excited about dog training. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that somebody like Chad, who was huge at the time, and I was nobody, was actually talking to me like a peer, which was, you know, it was very cool. And one day sometime after that, I don't remember how long it was. I remember I I was with my father for his birthday and Chad called me up and he just said, hey, We're doing the elections for the board of directors. If I nominated you, would you accept it? And we had a conversation about it. And, you know, I was just excited to be like, oh wow, board of directors, that sounds cool, like prestigious, right? Mm So I was like, Yeah, you know, having really no idea what it all entailed. Not that I would have changed it, but so that's what happened. And he nominated me and I submitted all the material. And I got brought on by the the board. So the way the ICP works is there's 10 directors. Six of them are board elected. Four of them are member elected. So I got brought on by the board, which is a three-year term. And that kind of started that. And that talked about another learning curve. I mean, you're talking board meetings and parliamentary Mm. procedure. Mm. and I mean, I was maybe 27 at the time, maybe 28. I mean, I was very young.
2: Mm.
0: It must have been 28. And yeah, so and I'm thrown in with all these adults. And Martin Dealey's there. And Chad's there. And Karen Laws is there. And all these like people that are way older than me, that are may- way more experienced than me. And I just sort of figured it out. And again, I had some things I wanted to accomplish and did that. And it turned out, I think Chad kind of knew all along from the day that he asked me that he wanted me to be a president because he was president at the time.
1: Right. So you're being groomed Groomed from the get-go.
0: Yeah, basically right away, my first face-to-face board meeting. So when you get elected, you start sitting in on the, the board meeting Phone calls, which happened at at that time bi monthly, so twice a month, and you start sitting in on them, which from like maybe November to January, but you're not participating because you're not yet a board member, but you're Mm -hmm. just learning how they go. Then come January, you're officially a board member. And then in February, you all get together and you have a face to face meeting. So you all fly into one location and you meet for two days. And at that meeting, it came to light that the current vice president had to resign. And they basically unanimously voted me in as vice president right there. So I had been board member for no more than a month and a half. And the I'm real, like now I'm vice president.
3: Baptism by fire, right? Mm, mm.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, pretty early on, they're having talks about who's going to be president because you got to groom for that position. you got to learn stuff, you know. And they asked me and I said no. <laughs> um, because the board at the time was a lot of really – Differing opinions, and it was very contentious. And I, I saw the load of stress that was on the president, and I was like, Oh, God, no,
2: hmm.
0: no way, <laughs> you know. And Mark Goldberg's trying to convince me to do it because he was a past president, but all the time he's convinced me to do it, he's telling me about how awful it is. I'm like, You guys aren't <laughs>
2: really telling us, <this,"> you know.
0: <laughs> so I declined it for many years, and then a couple of years ago, um, James Ham, who was the current president, who that was one of my ways of getting out of being president was James joined the board. And he's like this ex-military guy with great leadership skills. And I was like, not me, that guy. He's, he's going to be great for it. And he was. He was who we needed at that time to kind of whip us into shape. And then before we knew it, the board was this highly functioning thing. And we had good people on there. And we were actually getting things done. And then James got ill and he had to resign. And it was right before one of our conferences. So we're all at conference scrambling because we had just found out James isn't going to be there. He couldn't even make it to conference. So we had a, we were a, you know, a man down and our staff, like the board runs the conference and we know who's going to be where at what time. So all of a sudden having somebody not there throws a monkey wrench in everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got to figure out who's going to be where, when, as we're all scrambling to get things together and everybody's saying, you've got to be the next president. You've got to be the next president. And I'm like, I don't want to <laughs> at the same time. I was at the conference doing James's role. So I was doing the presidential announcements and all the kinds of things that go along with that. And I got on the phone with my wife and we were talking it over and just at a certain point, I was just like, you know what? I've got to do this. I just kind of felt a sense of duty. There were people that I wanted to be in the role instead of me, but they just felt like they weren't ready yet. And they asked me to do it. And I sat down with Martin and I said, Martin, you know, I've given this a lot of thought. And I'm willing to do it, but only if I know that I have you behind me because Martin and I get along great, but we didn't always. In my first year on the board, we butted heads quite a bit on some issues and it got really intense for a while. But one thing about Martin and I is we've always been able to then, okay, once it's settled, it's settled and then we move on. Mm -hmm. So we've always gotten along, but we had some points of contention. And so I sat him down and I said, you know, this is your baby. And I, I will only do this if I have your support. And he said, 100%, you've got my support. You've got the support of everybody. The whole membership wants you in this role. And so I, I did that and I took on James's remainder of that year. And of course, right at the end of conference is, is when we vote for the president for the next year. So I, I, you know, said I would do it for the upcoming year. And then, um, I kind of just knew at that point, I had two years left on my term that at that point, I kind of just knew I would I would end up being president until the end of my term, even though it's voted on yearly, I just, I knew the, the climate and who was on the board and who was willing to be president and who wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so yes, yeah, so this is my sort of like second and a half year as president. And it's been cool. And it's, you know, I kind of went kicking and screaming into it. But again, once I was there, I said, I'm I'm going to do this my way. And I'm going to do the best I can. And um it's tough and sometimes the best I can is like one of those things where it's like I know I could do better if this was my full-time gig but it's not it's volunteer and I have to still run my business and raise my family yeah. and that's tough for me to know like man if I had more time to invest I know I could do a better job but I, I, the reality is I just can't invest more time that's difficult Well that that's a perfect
3: time to just tell us a little bit about cuz not everyone listening especially in Australia would actually know what the IACP is and what they do. So, And like, what the benefit of being a member is. Yeah. So all that work you're talking about, like I'm aware, you know, like the ban in Toronto was turned around because of effort you put in, right? The letter you wrote was a huge part of that.
0: Yeah. And the, a lot of other people and a lot of other organizations as well. But yeah, we, we did everything that we could to contribute. Sure. For sure.
3: So what is the IACP and why should people join? And how do you represent the average dog
0: trainer? Sure. So, I'll put this in sort of a nutshell. So, you know, Martin started the ICP almost 20 years ago, and it was him and a small group of other founding members that all put in money and and helped get this thing off the ground. And the reason they did that was Martin used to be heavily involved with the APDT. And when they started going down the positive only road, they sort of gave him the boot. And he recognized, he and, and, and those early founding members had the foresight to recognize that if we don't have an organization, that's kind of standing up for a, a more open-minded approach, this this is going to be bad for dogs.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so they, they put their resources together and they started the ICP to support, you know, open-minded and balanced dog training. And that's what the organization has always been there for. So right now, you know, that's, that was the big thing that I wanted to get us really heavily involved in when I became president, and especially because there's all sorts of legislation cropping up everywhere that's limiting our ability to use our professional judgment as to what is best for the individual dog and the individual owner that you know we're caring for. And so that's really what we're there for. And You know, when people ask about benefits, it's funny because when I first joined the board, it was always our, you know, we'd have these marketing discussions. It's like, well, let's make sure everybody knows that, you know, we have these networking opportunities and our sponsors offer discounts. I'm like, to me, it was so backwards because when I look at it, like a perfect example is I used to get a subscription to National Geographic magazine and I almost never even had time to read the thing. Mm. But I love what National Geographic does as an organization and what they stand for. And that's why I support them. That's why I love getting their subscription and learning about what they're doing. And I'm happily give them my money, even though I don't always get to read the magazine. Yeah. Right. And it's almost like if you're a member of like the World Wildlife Foundation. Right. It's not like, well, what are they going to do for me? And of course, Mm -hmm. you know, the ICP, we, we, we do try to do as much as we can for our members. We put on the conference every year. We do our newsletters. We do have a lot of benefits. Yeah, you know, right now mostly in the States because that's where our membership is as far as insurance and stuff like that goes. But we're working on now expanding that out into other countries or at least seeing what we can do to benefit, you know, more members in more countries. And, you know, we look at all that stuff, but really to me, the the only reason anybody should join is because they want to support an organization that whether you join us or not, whether you ever give us a dime, we're supporting what you do. We're supporting your freedom to use your own professional judgment, and we're trying to set higher standards for the industry by authoring certification programs that are in depth and balanced, that that test your knowledge on all aspects of animal behavior, not just one side of the coin. Mm. Um, and we're going to continue doing these things whether anybody gives us a dime, as long as we can, you know, have the resources to do it. What we'll, we'll do as much as we can, and so that's the reason to join is. Because why wouldn't you want to support an organization that's that's fighting for you? And the reality is our strength is in numbers. And so when we look at, for instance, legislation cropping up in a specific country, if we don't have members in that country, their politicians, their legislators, they don't care what we have to say. Yeah. They only care about who's voting for them, yep. right? And as an individual, you don't hold a lot of weight. But when individuals band together under a unified name that has credentials, such as the IACP, then we start to have power. Yeah. Right now, we're the only organization that's doing it on the balanced end of things. We're I, the only ones out there on, I, I on a large scale.
1: I haven't had a a huge background with the ISCP. I've only recently just become a member. However, I did get to experience the conference with you over in uh, St. Louis. And, mate, to be honest, I was blown away with professionalism of how well that ran. Of course, Brenton Cat came over there as well. Jimmy Mulholland was there, met up with Josh, Justin and yourself and networked with some amazing people over there. And I just, like even the little trade, not little, the trade show that you guys set up in the foyer, which was fantastic. There were so many people out there. The flow and the the friendliness and the information that I gained from the the conference. I came home and I was just like, everyone said to me, what was it like? I said, it was just amazing. It was one of the best conferences I've been to. So kudos to you and the team. And I got a really good insight watching you guys working, you know, especially towards the wrap up of the conference, how many people were actively behind the scenes, especially when you guys were meeting towards the end. You know, there was just a barrage of people with their laptops out, all sitting there collating information and organizing and and staffing and just everything you guys did was on on such an impressive scale. I really have to congratulate you, Tyler, and your whole team. I know, you know, you're representing the front of the house, but there's a lot of people in the back of the house and that organization that are really grinding the gears to get things happening around the world. And, mate, kudos to you. You hit the nail on the head perfectly before when you said a lot of people kind of think, well, if I'm giving money, what am I going to get out of this? And you summarized it well. And just to reinforce that point, what you're getting is an organization that is fighting for us, that is basically saying there's got to be a stronghold at some point where we can expand and we can grow into a point where people are starting to listen rather than just defending ourselves in small pockets of groups around the world. I, this And this is why I said to you at the conference, and I know it's it's work, it's something that's got to evolve over a period of time but we really need a large organization that people around the world can be a part of. I think this is the, the, the real tipping point for you guys to say, this is it, this is a really good time because there is so many negative things happening as far as decisions made in dog training or management of dogs that there's nobody to, to fight them off because it's primarily becoming a one-sided argument. However, with the influence and the influx of organization such as yours that can change things that can actually change the
3: balance of power i think it yeah. before you say anything, i think it's worth pointing out it's no coincidence that in america where the iacp is the strongest there's to my knowledge no bans on tools currently prong calls that's all fine but in europe no matter where you go there's different laws everywhere and those tools are getting harder and harder to use and in australia you know i'm sure you, you remember when you were here Tyler, There's state yep. by state there's places you can use e-collars there's places you can't use prong collars and it surely it's no coincidence that that's because we don't have a strong body well we're not all members of a strong body fighting for that right so as you say the more people in australia that can join the ISCP, the more effect the ISCP can have for us is that correct
0: that's absolutely true and it's the it's tough things it's like you know the cart before the horse, and a lot of people. I can see why that's that's difficult to grasp at times, but it, it really is true that you know the strength is in the numbers, and we, we got to band together. It's the only way to do it. And you know the ICP, I mean, the cost of joining is minimal. As a professional member, which is the highest level membership, it's something like one hundred twenty-five or one hundred fifty dollars, uh, you know USD, mm-hmm. uh, for the year, which is really minimal if you're you know in business for yourself. It's just a drop in the bucket of your expenses. Um, and it's easy to join. It's just canineprofessionals dot com, and you can join online. Uh, but it's a great organization. It's a great thing to be a part of. And um, you know, I've I've certainly valued my time not only in the organization, but um, being able to work for it and and contribute in any way that I can. And um, and I'll continue to contribute, you know, because it's just it's something I believe in.
1: Fantastic. Well, I think we've monopolized enough of your time, buddy. And I know you've got a young fella that you've got to organize and get him to bed at some stage i've um, got two young ones now that's right yeah you've got to, you've got Congratulations. A, You've got your small clan started already which is fantastic tyler i want to thank you very much we had you for about an hour we've taken that just over to about an hour 20 so i really appreciate that, oh, that you've made time for us my friend it's always good talking to you regardless and uh, it was great that we had the experience of you in australia thanks to brent and cat who brought you out and again, uh, hopefully I get to go over to the ICP in Florida this Fingers year. crossed we're there. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Both Pat and I look like we're coming over there. We're about 90% at this stage. So unless that 10% sort of overwhelms us, but it shouldn't, all things going ahead. Again, getting back to you, how do we find you? Tell us about if people want to do some online mentoring or get in touch with you, how do they do that?
0: I have a few different ways you can find me. Um, I am on Facebook. And I have two pages on Facebook. So there's Canine Connection Buffalo. So it's facebook.com slash Canine Connection Buffalo. That's my training business. And then I also have, it's called Tyler Muto, dog trainer, speaker, coach. It's my professional page. Uh, that's just kind of more of my personal stuff that uh, people can follow. And then same thing on Instagram. I have Canine Connection. I also have Tyler Muto. And I believe it's Canine Connection Buffalo on Instagram as well. Websites. You can go to buffalodogtraining.com or connectwithyourcanine.com. They both lead you to the same place. And then my other personal website is tylermuto.com. Yeah, those are the the best ways to see what I'm doing. Oh, and YouTube as well. Just Google or YouTube search my name, Google search my name, whatever. I'm on YouTube. Uh, I've got a bunch of videos there. And before we go, I have to get back to you about the book question. The book question. See, I didn't forget. I was thinking about it the whole time you were talking instead of listening to you. Yeah. So, all right. So Marcus Aurelius Meditations is one. My second one, because I know this is a lot of dog people out there. Um, I really love Susan Clothier's book, If Bones Would Rain from the Sky, mm-hmm. or Bones Would Rain from the Sky if a Dog's Prayers Were Answered. It's a long title. That's a phenomenal book that I think every like dog owner and dog trainer should read. It's just a beautifully written book book on living with dogs. And then the other book, since I have one that's kind of like life and one that's kind of dogs, this one's sort of a crossover, which is a book called The Philosopher and the Wolf. It's by Mark Rollins, who is a philosophy professor who purchased, it was like a wolf hybrid, I believe, and ended up having to raise this thing and brought it to his classroom with him. And it's just the story of how he ended up living with this animal and how he had to live with the animal. But it's really sort of a philosophical dissertation about morality and mortality. But it's funny because he references the Keeler method of training and all this other stuff. But it's actually a very beautifully written, uh, very powerful book.
1: There was another one one I heard uh, you and Brent discussing when we picked you up from the airport in Sydney called Ego or something like that.
0: Oh, Ego is the Enemy. Yeah, Ryan Holiday. That's a great book. He has, he has two books. Actually, the other one very relevant to our discussion today is called The Obstacle is the Way. And actually, that was the, the first book that he wrote. It's called The Obstacle is the Way. It's a very famous book. And then Ego is the Enemy came out afterwards. And they're both really awesome books as far as like just, you know, kind of philosophy of life, how to be a good person, how to kick ass, how to make the best of yourself. They're, they're great books.
1: That's pretty awesome. We started with three book recommendations. Now we've went to five.
3: Mm, perfect excellent (laughs) i'm glad i just glad i had one i got to pretend like i've read one (laughs) pretend like i was up there and i was thinking i'm gonna be this is gonna be so cool if i've read all those books but i haven't i haven't well it's given us a good recommendation (laughs) list anyway awesome hey tyler thanks very much for coming on
0: hey guys i really enjoyed it thanks for having me thank you so much my friend
3: well that's it for another episode of the canine paradigm as always if you like what you hear Please tell a friend, rate us, like, share, subscribe on whatever subscription platform you've got us from. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can do that via Facebook. It's probably the easiest way. We are The Canine Paradigm there. And we're on Instagram as well, The Canine Paradigm. That's it. Glenn, Give the music.